Otherwise, the words will be on the screen behind me for you to follow along with. 2 Samuel chapter 12, reading from verse 1 through to 24. Nathan rebukes David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all that had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? by doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. 
David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realised the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house and at his request they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord might be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. It's my great pleasure this morning to welcome uh, Vivian Grice. Um, many of you will need no introduction for who Viv is, but for others, I'm mindful that this might be the first time that you've seen or, or heard from Viv. Um, Viv is a senior leader in our movement of churches across New South Wales and the ACT. He's been in ministry, whether in pastoral ministry or senior leadership of the association, probably for the length of my lifetime. Um, he's pastored a number of churches in New South Wales, and his current role is team leader for Generation 1K Leadership Development. And, and Viv has a real interest, and in his work is around supporting the healthy development and growth of pastors and churches and chaplains. Ron, uh, Viv is here with his wife Rhonda today and it's a real pleasure to have them here with us. Let's give Viv a very warm welcome. Well thanks Joel for that very very warm welcome and it is good uh, for Rhonda and myself to be here this morning. It's a pleasure to be worshipping with you and sharing in communion, such a central symbol of our faith, and uh, it is good to be here, not just to be worshipping with you, but to cast back memories in some ways, uh, in many ways when Ron and I come back to the Central Coast, we feel like we're coming home, and it's great to have Trevor Fist here this morning, who married Rhonda and me 40 years ago, and Trevor I think has turned out to make sure that we're still uh, acting on the wise advice that he gave us uh, all those years ago, and I know that Trevor gave me certainly some wise advice when I went to see him just before we got married. And then, of course, Brian Shirley, who was uh, part of Rhonda's conversion story when he was pastor at the old East Gosford, uh, West Gosford, uh, sorry, East Gosford Baptist Church. So it is good to be with you this morning and particularly good to be looking at this passage, although thanks, um, Joel, for giving me this passage. There's an awful lot in this uh, text, isn't there? And we won't have time to look at it all this morning, but we'll be looking at it around that theme that uh, Joel's been leading you through over the last few weeks on After God's Own Heart. And the title that I've given it this morning is After God's Own Heart, Accepting God's Perspective. But we'll unpack that in a few moments. And I just wonder whether you'd pause with me as we just pray together right now. Almighty God, we thank you for uh, the fact that as we gather together, you've promised that you are present with us. And we thank you that we are able to gather in worship, in confession, in praise this morning. 
And I pray now that as we gather around your word, the living word of God, uh, that your spirit might instruct and speak to us. Lord, we don't want to just fill our head with more knowledge. Most of us here have heard more sermons than we can poke a stick out in our lifetime. But we pray that you'll transform us by your word and by the living word of God. Holy Spirit, therefore, come and speak to us, we pray now, in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what you think is the most interesting thing on the planet. According to some statistics that I heard recently, uh, out of the whole biomass, that is the whole mass of living creatures on the earth, uh, both animals and plants, human beings make up 0.01% of the biomass, even though there are 7 million of us. 7 billion of us. I think uh, human beings are the most interesting thing on the planet. We are complex. The brain, as far as scientists can understand at this stage, is the most complex thing in the universe. And when I think about even my own behaviour and how I operate in life, and when I look at other people, we are the most interesting thing on the planet because we're so complex. And the way that we behave and misbehave is often so profoundly mysterious. And David was one of those very interesting people on the planet who lived um, as the king of Israel and was a very complex person. And yet, ironically, as Joel has been leading you through, it is said that he was a person, a man, after God's own heart. And if you know anything about David... I ask myself the question, why in the world does God say that about David? How in the world does David's life, in all of its wonder and glory, but also its complexity and awfulness, because what David did in terms of Bathsheba and uh, his, her husband, in that little context, is only part of some of the awful things that David did through his life. How in the world does this man... This person get described as a man after God's own heart. And how does this text today that we have, 2 Samuel chapter 12, reveal that? But before we get into that, I want to suggest this morning that... Uh, I'm not quite sure where I pushed this. Is this on or not? No, it's not. Maybe Can you guys operate that from the back there? Because this doesn't seem to be working. I'm not really great with technology. Maybe I'm pushing the wrong button. Um, I'll give that to you, Joel. But I want to suggest that before we get into that, before we uh, look at this text, I want to suggest that uh, the heart matters. And I think there are four fairly significant principles when it comes to a Christian view of ethics and morality and spirituality. And they should appear on the screen, I think, in a moment. The first principle is this, that effective behaviour change that's long-lasting must start from the inner world of the heart. If I want to change, then in the end, it's got to start inside. That's the first principle. The second principle, I think, that is true is this, that in the end, appearances count for nothing, or they at least count for very, very little. There is so much in our culture today that puts emphasis on how we appear physically on the outside and how we behave on the outside, but in the end, according to the scriptures, that will count for very, very little. 
The third thing, the third principle, I think, that applies for Christian ethics and morality is this. That in the end, the outside, the behaviour that we exhibit, that you and I exhibit every day, springs in the long term from within in the heart. Jesus said that in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He said it's out of the heart that springs the evil that we do and the good that we do. And the fourth principle is this, that if we're to grow as people, if we are to become anywhere near a description of being a person after God's own heart, then we've got to take responsibility for our actions. And all of these things are apparent in this series that Joel's been leading you through, A Man After God's Own Heart. Effective behaviour's got to start from within. Appearances in the end count for nothing. In the end, behaviour reveals the heart. And fourth, accepting responsibility for our actions is the only way that we'll grow as people. And all of this goes so much against what the modern world throws at us that says that appearance and the external is more important and so critical. And the, and the modern emphasis upon the image that we create, whether it's through what we post on Facebook or what we say on Twitter or any of those other modern media platforms. So, what I want you to do for a moment is go to this next slide and I want you to turn to the person next to you and think about that in the light of those four principles. What is the main point of this story that we've got for us today? 2, uh, two, um, two Samuel chapter 12. So simply turn to the person next to you. I'm not going to do all the work this morning, okay? Uh, you're here, there's more wisdom in this room than a lot of, uh, lot of places. So turn to the person next to you and answer these two questions. How did, what's the main point of this story and how does this story reveal someone who is after God's own heart? And I'll give you just one minute to do that, okay? Talk to the person next to you. Now, I could be really cheeky at this stage and say that I'll get you to talk back to me and if you give me the right answer, the sermon stops here, okay? And we can all go home. And Ronald would probably say, that's fantastic. That's the shortest time you've ever preached in your whole life. But we're not going to quite do that, but I want you to think about that a little bit. What's the main point of the story and how does this story here reveal someone who is described as a man after God's own heart? Let's get a bit of a background to the story, however. There are two stories and two people here in this little text that we've got before us. As I said, there's a whole lot in this passage that we could talk about. But there are two people. We might just go to the next slide if that's okay. There are two people here. There is, first of all, there's Nathan the prophet, who, if you'd listened to Joel's sermon two weeks ago, had very little power in this situation. The king could have taken his head off. But Nathan the prophet comes at the command of God and confronts the most powerful person in the land with a tough message. So there's Nathan the prophet and David the king with all the power. One power 
less person or underpowered person and the other one a highly powered person. But then you've got two people in David. You've got David the king, the image on the outside, and you've got David the man who, like all of us, had strengths and weaknesses, who committed sins and who had great strengths. You've also got two stories within this little text. You've got the metaphorical story that Nathan the prophet gives to David, the story that's a symbolic story where David the king gets so enraged because his sense of justice has been trampled on by that story. And he's so enraged that he wants to kill the person that this story is about. And then in this great classic story, this great classic image, Nathan the prophet says to David, as his heart's been prepared and his rage has been stirred, Nathan the prophet turns to David and said, you are that man. That's the real story, isn't it? The real story. What a powerful moment that would have been in the story. So there's two stories and there's two people. But there's also a before and after story in this text, isn't there? Before, and again we might just slip off to the next slide, before, what do we find? We find an unrepentant and in many ways unaware king who's enraged about a story of injustice. That's the before story in this text. But what do we find after the after story in this text? we find a much more self-reflective man, a humbled and repentant king and a prayerful father. There's the before story and the after story. There's the story of David the man and there's a story of David the king. There's a story of the man, of the king who had the image of this powerful person who had it all together and the story in the end of the broken man who realised that he wasn't who he thought he was. So how do these two stories about these two people, the divided man within the king and Nathan the prophet confronting this king, the, the before story and the after story, how does this story in the text today reveal to us a person who is after God's own heart in a way that can confront us with becoming people after God's own heart. Because isn't that the purpose of getting here today? It's a curious thing being a minister, I think, Joel. I don't know whether you found this. Uh, But you're leading a bunch of people who in many ways you've got to try and keep happy to a certain extent, haven't you? I mean, they're the ones who cough up the dough and pay you. Uh, Unlike somebody who years ago said, oh, the government pays you, don't Vivian? Well, I don't know whether that's changed, but it doesn't happen up here. So in many ways, uh, the minister has got to, in some senses, keep the people with them and to some degree keep them happy. But what is a pastor who's doing their job doing, if they're going to do it well, what are they aiming to do? What is Joel aiming to do in the power of God? He's aiming to change your life and to make you sometimes somebody who you might not want to be. So the pastor is caught between these twin things. And this is what Nathan's doing. The story is not just to inform us, but to transform us. So that when we go out of this building, we're different from when we came in. So how does that story 
impact our lives so that there might be a before and after story for us. There might be a story where our outer image is more aligned with what we are in our inner world. I want to suggest just three simple things this morning that speak to us or speak to me from this passage about how it reveals a person after God's own heart, how it reveals David who was this broken, wounded, powerful, transformative person was really in all of that messiness. A person after God's own heart. And how we, in all our brokenness and messiness and glory and sin can become a little bit more people after God's own heart. I want to suggest three things this morning from this passage. First of all, we can become a person after God's own heart if, like David, we acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge our brokenness. We acknowledge the mould in the cupboard of our lives, in the back of the room, in the dark. Now, when somebody confronts us with something, what's our normal posture? I know that for me, if I'm rightly rebuked with something that I know is real about me, that I could have done better or I've grievously done wrong, if somebody confronts me about something, whether it's small or great, I tend to do one of three things. I, first of all, tend to perhaps uh, defend myself. Do you find yourself doing that, you know? Somebody comes and says, um, Vivian, you've done such and such. Well, no, I didn't, or, and I defend myself. Or I can explain, yes, I did that, but there's a whole raft of reasons why I ended up doing it. Or I justify why I did what I did, because it was somebody else's fault. Often if somebody confronts me with something that I know that I need to attend to, I defend, I justify or I ex- try to explain it away rather than simply acknowledging that I did it. Think about how Adam responded when God said to him in the Garden of Eden in that very human story. What did Adam say when he was confronted by God? He said, yes, but really it was the woman that you gave me, okay? It was her fault, and ultimately, God, it was your fault. We tend to do that, don't we? If we want to be people who are after God's own heart, when we are challenged with something that we know deep in our heart, and we usually do, I usually do, that is wrong and sinful, we need to put our hands up and say, yep, Lord, I have sinned against you, which is what David did in chapter 12, verse 13. I've sinned against the Lord. He didn't defend, justify, or explain. He didn't say, yes, I did, but really Uriah was a shonky general and I knew that Bathsheba really loved me. By the way, she was such a gorgeous looking woman. I couldn't help it. It was her fault. She was too good looking. And she shouldn't have been bathing in the nude on the rooftop wherever we could sit. It was really her fault. I couldn't control myself which is what some people defend their actions by. Implicit in this statement is a humble repentance. If we want to be people, if I want to be a person who anywhere can be called a person of God's own heart, then when I'm confronted with wrong, I need to simply own up. 
The second thing from this passage that I see is this. If we want to be people after God's own heart, like David was somebody after God's own heart, we've got to become, after confession and repentance, we've got to become prayerfully dependent. I'm moved by the rest of the story. This is a very moving story, isn't it? He'd lost a child that he loved. And there's stuff in here that's a little bit odd. Why? Not, not odd, but hard to explain from a human perspective. Is God punishing the child for the sin of the father? Why is the child killed? Lots of imponderable theological questions there that we won't dive into. Joel can deal with that in the future. There's another series here. But what does David do after he's discovered his own sinfulness and confessed it? He moves on and becomes profoundly, prayerfully dependent upon God. He spends days pleading with God for the life of this child, this son whom he loved. One of the great things about our culture, or one of the dominating things about our culture, I think, is that we are taught to be ruthlessly independent. And one of the things that we need to learn to be is not dependent, but dependent upon God in partnership. David begins to become a much more prayerfully dependent person upon God. Faith calls us to have dependence on God, not solely out of weakness, but in humble regard, in humble acknowledgement of our smallness and his greatness and the fact that he invites us amazingly into partnership with, you, with him in the work of his kingdom in the world. Um, there was some research done recently that, uh, uh, by uh, somebody called Grant Bickerton who is a psychologist and did some research on pastors and on the spiritual resources that pastors need for surviving well in ministry. One of the spiritual resources, and I don't think it's just pastors, I think it's all people who are followers of Christ in the cut and thrust of life. And he talks about this concept of collaborative religious coping. Collaborative religious coping. When things go wrong in our lives, as they all do for all of us at some point in time, we can have one of three responses. One, we can simply say, I'm going to let go and let God. I'm going to be passive and I'm just going to leave it up to the Lord. Ever heard anybody say that? I'm just going to leave it up to the Lord. I'm not going to do anything. God will sort it out. Don't worry. And it's like we do nothing. We become a passive, dependent person upon God. The other response at the other end of the spectrum is to say, God's given me a brain, uh, I've, got, uh, I've got some strengths and skills here, I'm going to work it out myself. It's like these two ends of a spectrum. One utter a posture of weakness, the other end a posture of saying, I can sort it out, God's given me the ability. Grant Pickerton's research says the middle way is the best way, collaborative religious coping, saying, I'm going to rely upon God. He is the Father who loves me. He has unlimited resources, and I'm going to pray as David prayed, dependently upon him. But 
God has given me a brain to think with. He's given me other resources and other persons. We collaborate with God, and that's a very scriptural position. What does Paul call us uh, in the New Testament? He says we are called into partnership with God. And if we adopt that posture in life, we're far more likely to surf through the rigours of life more effectively. Collaborative religious coping. What does David do here? He enters into a partnership with God, pleads with his son, pleads for his son in a prayerfully dependent but not weak way. The third and final thing I think that I take from this passage about becoming a person after God's own heart is this. We need to exercise active faith. What does David do at the end of this terrible time where his son dies? After, what was it, after seven days? On the seventh day the child died. Now the servants are afraid to tell David. They can see him profoundly immersed in grief. And for any of you who might have lost a child, you know how damaging and and traumatic that is. And we can empathise with David. Where Bathsheba is in this story, we're not sure, but no doubt she was deeply grieving, perhaps even more than David. She was the mother. But what did David do straight after the fact that the child had died? He'd gone to God with prayer and God had not answered the prayer in the way that he wanted. What did David do? It's said that he got up from the ground, he washed, changed his clothes and worshipped. Oh, I left one thing out. He put on lotions. Blokes, uh, remember what he did there? He, he put on some aftershave or something. <laughs> After he'd washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Now the servants thought that was a really odd thing to do, didn't they? Why in the world are you doing that, David? You fasted and wept while the child was alive. Now that he's died, you're eating and drinking and getting on with life. Can I suggest... that this is the important thing of being a person after God's own heart. He adopted a a posture of active faith. He didn't remain in passive self-pity or self-condemning grief. One of the things, if confronted by our sin, and particularly if we fail in life in a grievous way, is that we can continue to beat up on ourselves for a long, long time and self-flagellate. David didn't do that. He accepted his sin, confessed it. He prayerfully depended upon God for the bringing of his son back to life or uh, uh, from death. When that didn't happen, what did he do? Did he descend into self-pity and self-loathing and self-condemnation? No, he moved on. The story may compress that a little, but I don't think that he adopted the posture of a victim. He assumed the posture of a worshipper in a trusting God who had yet more for him to do. He didn't sink into a slough of despond and withdraw from life. He engaged in life once again. And I want to suggest that that's another way in which it's important for us to be people after God's own heart. We own up to and take responsibility for our sin when confronted by it. 
We live a life of collaborative religious coping where we depend upon get God in prayer but then do our best to get on with it. That's never easy, is it? And David still suffered many things after this that resulted from his sin. But if we want to be people after God's own heart, I think like David, we're on that trajectory. If we own up, confess and accept when we do wrong, take responsibility for it, if we depend prayerfully upon God in reliance upon him and partnership with him and then keep engaged with life and doing God's work. So the final question is this. Am I a person after God's own heart? Are you a person after God's own heart? It begins, of course where Joel took us to in the communion table. It begins by a life surrendered to God in Christ. And it might be that there's somebody here this morning who's never really done that in a conscious way, who's never surrendered to Christ and said, God, my life is yours. That's the starting place for you this morning. But probably for the majority of us, we've been walking with Christ for many years. And we need to be reminded once again that the journey of becoming a person after God's own heart begins in the sort of place that David was in. Owning up without defending, explaining or justifying when confronted by our own sin. Prayerfully living a life of dependent partnership upon God and then getting on with life as best we can when God calls us to. Am I a person after God's own heart? No, not not yet. Are you? We're all on the journey. But my prayer is that together with God we might increase and become people after God's own heart because it's when we're like that that people have got the best chance of seeing and finding God for themselves if they don't know him. It's through you and it's through me that people will see God's heart if we're people after God's own heart. Let's pray together. Why not spend a moment or two reflecting, am I a person after God's own heart? Are there things that I need to bring to him in dependent prayer? Are there things that he's calling me to do and I need to adopt the posture not of a victim but of a worshipping, obedient person? Oh Lord, I pray for these your people here at Aaronah Baptist Church today. I thank you for the rich history of many here who have served you faithfully for many years. Thank you for those who are new to this place, who have perhaps found faith here in the last little while. For the children in this place who will be the church not of tomorrow but who are indeed part of the church today. And I pray for this your congregation here, Lord, that we might indeed be more and more people after God's own heart. Lord, help us to love you, serve you, follow you and obey you with all the strength that you can give us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.